and I am bored of telling people to turn off their lights. I am bored of telling people to conserve energy, right? I'm bored. We're done with this. I've spent 20 years telling this lie, which is we have to use less. No, we can all use less. And do you know what? I did that, right? I never learned to drive. I went vegan in 2002, well before it was trendy or easy. Um, you know, I, I did everything. I, I quit flying. I did everything that I was supposed to do that this environmental movement told me was the way to stop climate change. And what I realized over the years is that it's a lie. And that actually, even if we all did that, it wouldn't touch the emissions that are coming from the fossil fuels and huge corporations who depend on the fossil fuels. It's just not going to touch them. It's a lie. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name's Jonathan Astro. With me is the great Ricky Allpike. Howdy. Ricky, what's going on? What's going on? Well, we've got an exciting show today. Uh, we're bringing you a great interview with an environmentalist called Zeon Lights, who is a former Extinction Rebellion member, um, and she advocates for nuclear now, so we're going to have a chat with her about that. Um, but before we kick things off, I have a question for you, Astro. Have you ever written a review for a podcast? Um... What is what is this, the third degree? Of course I haven't. Of course I haven't, mate. <laughs> well, you know, I too have never written a review for a podcast. And I think this year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing it because there are a number of podcasts that I love, that I listen to all the time. And I think it's, I think it's time to show them some love and actually write a bit of, rev- of a review. I've actually started to financially support a podcast that I that I really like as well. So uh, I'm starting to do a little bit more of that, which I think is is the right thing to do. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Okay. Have you ever paid for pornography? Mm, no. Right. Okay. Well, you sound <laughs> like you need to get off your high horse. <laughs> well, one, one thing we're trying to do this year is, uh, is engage our listeners and and try and appeal to them to write us a few reviews on Apple Podcasts because we only have, I think, two reviews. Uh, And we have a lot more listeners out there than just two. So uh, I'm appealing to everyone out there that if you you like the show, uh, if you like what we do, please consider getting on the Apple platform and writing us a bit of a review and, you know, rating us with some stars, that would be really helpful. Uh, it helps other people to find our podcast, but, you know, it also helps people to decide whether we're worth listening to. Yeah, that's right. It would be greatly appreciated. And um, yeah, we want to get those review numbers up, cost you nothing. Uh, only take, it doesn't have to be long review. You don't have to give us a, you know, your life story. Yeah. It's not an essay. No, you just say it was good. <laughs> they're good <laughs> preferably good well if you've got nothing nice to say then don't write i'm just saying don't write it don't write it yeah well if you've got nothing nice to say you, you probably shouldn't be tuning in no there are plenty of other podcasts out there for you to listen to no i'm happy if you don't like us and you're tuning in I, i'm here for you i love the hate listen you know if you're a hate listener i'm here for you too so don't worry <laughs> Excellent. Shall we uh, get stuck into this interview? Let's do it. Zeon Lights is a science advocate and environmental writer. She's the author of The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting and co-author of Zero Waste Kids with Rob Greenfield. Uh, Zeon left the controversial uh, environmental group Extinction Rebellion to advocate for nuclear energy and for a more science-based approach to climate activism. Uh, We're delighted to have her on the show. Uh, Welcome, Zeon. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, uh, I thought we'd kick off this interview uh, just by asking you about your your background specifically. Uh, so, as, as Ricky said, you've been a, a passionate climate activist for for many years, uh, and you you were involved with the rebellion. But now you've moved away and started out on your own. Um, I stumbled across an ominous warning on an XR press release. It said that for any uh, editors who might be considering platforming lights, we would like to make you aware of some information about the organization she works for and her employer. Now, you're clearly a very dangerous individual. <laughs> I mean, I am. If uh, if I hold an opposing view to you and I'm going to go out and share that view, then 
that would be perceived as dangerous by some people. <laughs> well, I was just a bit taken aback by this this little hit piece that was sent out by uh, XR. But um, so maybe firstly, uh, what is Extinction Rebellion? If we're, we're before we move on from them, and secondly, how did you go from uh, XR to uh, Nuclear Advocate? Extinction Rebellion is a large global movement that was founded here in the UK um, in I think late. 2017 but I wasn't involved then I wasn't there right at the beginning and they're kind of a group of about 15 activists from different um, organizations and they came together and decided to try and start a movement to get climate change on the agenda and I didn't really come across them until a little bit later Um, and when I did I was immediately invited to become a spokesperson which I accepted And I helped to take um, Waterloo Bridge in April. So in April 2019, we closed several roads around London. They're a bit naughty. But it did, it did, um, you know, previously there were lots of different actions we've been doing and no one had been paying attention. And that did make not just national news, but global news. It completely um, ignited this movement. And got climate change on the agenda. So I was happy because that was always kind of my angle. Um, I was always trying to talk about, you know, air pollution and, um, you know, global heating and things like that. So it took off quite rapidly. And actually, I'd say it took off too quickly for the small kind of motley crew that we were to actually be able to handle. who were not really processes in place to deal with this huge boom of interest. You have regional groups that would set up who would do autonomous actions, um, you know, as in, independent of kind of this core central organizing group that I was in and then you'd have groups around the world um, and you'd have people saying well we want to campaign on this slightly different angle or we want to do something else or we want to change the demands and it was quite um yeah it was quite illuminating and exciting at the time as well but I think we actually got a lot wrong we made a lot of mistakes and kind of got lost along the way which you know brought me to the point of deciding that I needed to leave because um, I was offered a really big television slot which I took which was the Andrew Neil show and, you know, I was briefed beforehand and I knew, you know, what the numbers are, what I should and shouldn't say. And then I went in and he asked questions that required me to speak for the organisation where actually there were things I didn't agree with. And I found that very difficult and decided that actually, like in the in the duration of that interview, decided I actually didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to be able to say what I what I actually think. So it was time for me to, to part ways. And I remember, you know, Angelina asking me really clearly about gas. And he kept pressing the point. If you watch that clip, I mean, it went viral um, overnight. But he just keeps asking, well, how much gas are we going to have to give up? And I really wanted to say we should build more nuclear reactors. And I knew that as a spokesperson for this group, I couldn't say it. So that was really a turning point for me because I thought, well, someone needs to be able to say it. And why am I not allowed to say it? You know, and actually, I think if I'd said renewables, they would have been happy. But I did. I, you know, I wanted to talk about nuclear. So I, yeah, I quit after that. And I decided the best thing to do would be to start my own movement because I've been in these groups for a long time and I've seen what they do right and what they do wrong. And, you know, it's it kind of the worst timing to launch a movement during a pandemic because we've had lockdowns, we've not been able to go out and protest, you know, there's, there's so many restrictions and things. So, yeah, it's difficult. Although I'm, I'm, I've never kind of envisioned it as taking off like Extinction Rebellion did, to be honest. I think that they did achieve things though, you know, in terms of kind of changing the dialogue and getting some of the science on the agenda, I think they've done really good things. There's other things that I don't agree with. But then, you know, there were things I didn't agree with when I was in the group as well, which I was vocal about. It's just, you know, when you're on the inside and everyone likes you. <laughs> now I say them on the outside. I'm not so popular. So I found an emergency reactor and we're, we're another little motley crew that go out and do pro-nuclear actions. We don't do anything illegal um, or block roads or anything like that. But it is hard. It is hard to get the conversation going without doing things like that because you know the media is not really interested unless it's something a bit different or controversial but I have been quite good at getting in the press by saying slightly controversial things which is actually easy to do about nuclear because it's like this you know controversial thing for everybody already so when I come out and say nuclear saves lives it kind of perks ears up so it's not as difficult as talking about something like climate change which you know um, I think we've heard about a lot from the same angle for a long time. Well, we'll definitely be covering a little bit of uh, nuclear for sure, but but just just on XR for a second. So, do, what are the stated goals of Extinction Rebellion? If I can test your memory. Oh yeah, you're testing me now. <laughs> so three demands. 
One is for the government to declare a climate emergency. Um, two is to set up, no wait, two is to halt biodiversity loss, a uh, bit vague that one. And three is to set up citizens assemblies to replace the existing uh, system of government. Very good, you passed the test. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And um, yeah, you, you know, I used to reel those off all the time. That was part of my, my role. But I didn't I didn't necessarily agree with them. You know, I don't necessarily agree that um, we have to have citizen assemblies in order to stop climate change. This is what they say. They say the system caused climate change. So we have to change the system to stop climate change. Whereas I'm saying all the science says we just need to stop climate change. Like right now, there's no time for this political upheaval and getting, you know, whatever thing you want instead of the current system. There's no time for that. And they've but actually because they conflated that and I you know I feel a bit bad because I used I, I was one of these people that would talk about it and all, all the time in the press citizen assemblies I think there's a problem now that they've conflated them and all climate activists will use that same line it's the system the system needs to change there's actually we just really just need to do something about climate change then you can talk about the system afterwards sure but first you need to you know have a habitable planet uh well, well I have two friends that are involved with Extinction Rebellion and don't worry I won't name names um I get the feeling from what I've heard through them and, and, and what I've seen in the in the media and, and online is that the organization lacks seriousness. Uh, last year in Australia, we saw a bizarre demonstration and I believe uh, they call this an action uh, where a giant effigy of a koala was ceremoniously burned. Um, and I've seen sort of similar events that involve dancing and DJs and people seem to be having, uh, having you know, a great time. Um, do you think that Extinction Rebellion are, are helping the climate cause or hindering it? I hadn't heard about that koala thing. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I think, I, <laughs> the, the, the koala was quite impressive. It's a the huge sort of a puppet thing, yeah. Um, I think it depends on how you kind of how you assess it. So I would say that the movement was effective in getting climate change on the agenda because I was talking about climate change for years before that, and honestly, nobody cared. Nobody was listening. It was really hard to to get slots where I could talk about it and then when I did people just lost interest and they say oh not more doom you know mongering and fear mongering and doom doom and gloom and I'd say well no this is a serious issue and we should do something um and I had been saying that for years you know we have known about it for years for decades so I think they did a good job in that regard and but I kind of feel like that's all they needed to do and now they've done that that's that's it they should move on to something else <laughs> So for me, that is, okay, well, let's look at what the solutions are. And not so much just, you know, what we don't want. We don't want gas. We don't want coal. We need to look at what we do want, which is why I focus on nuclear, because we do want nuclear. We want cheap electricity. We want good unionized jobs, which they are over here, unionized. You know, there's lots of good things to fight for. And I appreciate in activism and, in you know, in the history of social movements, being against something is far more effective in achieving goals than being for something so i appreciate that that's the theory they're relying on and that that's what they're trying to do but i just think actually it's got to a point now where they are i do think they're you know kind of hindering um allowing the conversation to move forward to what the solutions are because if you get stuck on this well it's the system it's a very vague statement um that you know could go a million different ways and actually we just need to look at you know, saving wild spaces and bringing down emissions. That's pretty much it, right? That's climate change and biodiversity. So let's look at what that actually looks like and what needs to be done rather than say the whole system has to go before we can before we can do any of that. Actually, you know, I'm surprised so many people buy that actually. Yeah, well, that brings me on nicely to my next question, actually. And the, the one thing that annoys me a lot about XR is that it offers up no practical solutions to tackle climate change. Uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion, that they could put their considerable financial capital and, and human resources towards uh, supporting, say, research and development or funding scientific research or lobbying with the help of experts. Uh, but they don't seem to do that. Uh, they seem uh, to be more interested in arts and crafts. Um, I, I know you're not a spokesperson for XR, but could you help me understand their, their reasoning here? Well, I mean, a lot of them are from, you know, artsy background so that's one thing um a lot of them aren't scientists so they don't feel that they should necessarily be commenting um on those angles and i you know kind of i get that um 
And I don't necessarily think that that's wrong. So they see their role more as drawing attention to issues. And then, you know, they're quite good at doing that. You know, it might be a giant koala or it might be a giant pink boat. Um, you know, good, good photographs for media opportunities. But they're good at all of that stuff. Um, they're not going to move on to solutions. I, I had those discussions when I was in the kind of core organising group and they're very wedded to, you know, what they see as something that worked already, that it's taken off. So why would you kind of change it? Whereas I think a lot of social movements, a lot of these groups, you know, like Occupy as well, um, as a recent example, they kind of fall on their face if they don't adapt. And if they don't also develop some structures and maybe hierarchy, some, you know, so that there are, there are ways to sustain it beyond, um, you know, just a just a, mo a motley crew of people. You know, some some groups have managed this. You look at things like Greenpeace. You know, Friends of the Earth. They've monetized it. They you can have jobs in those areas. You know, they're not just um, voluntary activists. They they do it. They do it all full time. Um, but I think you know they didn't. That wasn't their aim. That isn't hasn't been their aim, and it won't won't be their aim. And when they've had money, they've spent it on you know protests or paying legal fees they're not really interested in becoming something different so you know that I think all all movements are different and I kind of I understand that I think you know they just think we're here to draw attention to climate change and that's it but I actually think at least in Britain um you know most people do care about it now and are talking about it and are worried about it so actually I don't think focusing on that fear is necessary that useful actually you know again you look at the social science fear is actually not a very good motivator long term it's much better to give people like, a, you know, hope and like ideas for how they can move forward and what they can do. And I'm not talking about things like, you know, turn your lights off when you leave the room, close the tap when you're brushing your teeth. Like we've had that for 30 years and I'm sorry, but it does nothing. It's, it's, it's nothing at this point. <laughs> we need to make really big rapid changes like building 50 reactors in the UK give us energy security, good green jobs, no dependence on Russia for gas. Wouldn't that be great? That, and clean emissions. That's it. That's all we want. So that's why I'm in this cause. Um, but obviously that, you know, the, no, the, you're not going to get them advocating for anything like that anytime soon. Well, we just got to, before we, we are going to pivot away from, from them entirely. Uh, second, maybe I'll just ask one, one more little question about them and then we'll get on to, to the big question of urgency. Uh, so, you know, I've checked out some of XR's uh, videos and podcasts, fascinating stuff, you know, good art department, the rest of it. But I must say, there is a, a kind of, and you, maybe it's not just them. Maybe this is this is part of a lot of different, you might have seen this in, in different movements, but there's a kind of a bit of a fight club or sort of hooligan firm vibe in there. We've got you know, sort of specialized language, talk about actions, there's dramatic speeches, tactical information, like what do you do when you go to prison? So and all this sort of talk of um, very ominous talk of grief uh, in very academic sort of um, language. Uh, there's a sense of adventure in the air. Uh, are some members sort of attracted to this aspect of the group? I was attracted to it. You know, I like I say, I spent a lot of time um, giving talks, writing articles. No one was reading them. You know, just feeling like I was bored. I was bored of talking about climate change and no one cared. And I was starting to think this is just hopeless. Um, and then I saw one of their protests and they had this giant pink boat and they were playing music and they were talking about all the same things I was talking about. And I thought, wow, actually, maybe they're more effective than I am. And so I joined in and immediately was thrown into the media spotlight and, you know, was kind of suddenly someone that people listened to after being someone that people ignored. And, you know, bear in mind that I've been doing this for a long time. I was arrested for protesting coal and tar sands uh multiple times in my early 20s you know way before climate activism was popular you know we were not not well received back then either um so I you know they got something right there and that and I think actually what we're talking about is branding they got the branding right and you know all organizations have branding Greenpeace has branding Friends of the Earth has branding um you know I always think it's funny when people say the nuclear industry is so big and evil and clever and has such good PR someone just wrote this about me recently uh this couple of uh anti-nuclear guys who don't like me they wrote this article in which they said that I'm part of a PR spin for the industry and doesn't it have great branding no it doesn't no it doesn't it has terrible branding if it had great branding everyone would be building these things everywhere right extinction rebellion has better branding than the nuclear industry they have brilliant branding and actually they have really strict branding guidelines too 
You're not allowed to use fonts that aren't the right font. You're not supposed to use colors that aren't in the color scheme. There's a whole, loads of documents about it online. Um, you have to use the extinction symbol, but you're only allowed to use it in specific circumstances. You know, so uh, yes, branding, good branding is appealing. We, we already know that, right? We know that from looking at sports brands or, or any brand, a car, car brand, any, anything that comes to mind, really, McDonald's. Uh, so why why would it why would it be different? They've created their own branding and it's been really successful, is is what I would say. Yes, and that brand has gotten in, you know, some of my absolute heroes, Alan Moore and you know Stephen Fry. I mean, these these people they're they're on that. Alan Moore doesn't care about nuclear. I'll tell you that right now. You know. It's, yeah, it's you know, like, actually, I I, I, I I worked with him when I was uh, working on the newspaper because we were trying to get an interview, and I did try. Um, Extinction Rebellion had a newspaper that I founded called the Hourglass, and we did try to get Alan Moore in there, but wow. I, I got the impression that it wouldn't happen. I'm okay. oh. <laughs> There's not a lot of people who are ready, but I'll tell you something, though. I'll tell you something. I have privately heard from uh, celebrities who I cannot name, but some of them you would know who they are, who have messaged me and said they completely agree, keep it up. But when I've asked them to say something publicly, they've said no. And that happened... That happened with Extinction Rebellion in the beginning about climate change. But as celebrities saw that it was taking off and getting popular, they started, you know, posting about it and wearing the badge. Um, it just took time for them to see that, you know, it was acceptable and wouldn't backfire. And I have had some very significant celebrities reach out and say that. And actually, I've, I always say, OK, well, can I send you a free T-shirt? And they accept. And I've posted them T-shirts personally. <laughs> so I'm waiting for the day when they feel it's OK to wear that t-shirt online because that will be a real real big setting point. Well, for the moment they're just cleaning their pool in it unfortunately, <laughs> but uh hopefully one day they will. But they do agree, you know, they do agree they're not pretending. They do agree. They just yes. know that there's a chance that that you know, it's understandable there's a chance that they could lose their careers if they go out and say, you know, if you're a comedian, really popular comedian, you go out and start saying good stuff about nuclear, are you going to get branded as an industry and people aren't going to come to your gigs anymore? Is it you know, I appreciate it, it is a risk for them. They're waiting for the what we call the social license, which is what my work has been really is just trying to create a social license for it to be okay to be pro nuclear because it is a scientific uh, position to take. Mm. Well, we 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 know all too well about council culture. We 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 talk about it on the podcast all the time. Um, but before we turn our attention to to nuclear energy, which we're we're really excited to talk to you in depth about. Um, I just like to spend a little time talking about renewables for a second. Um, I've heard family and friends say, you know, we have a country abundant in sunshine. We should be putting solar panels on every roof and every exposed surface we can. Um, the idea that we should exploit everyday weather events to our advantage seems to make sense. Um, it's debatable that they can get us to net zero, however. Um, can you give us your perspective on renewable technology? What I would say about renewables is they can't get you to net zero on their own. Like that just hasn't been achieved anywhere in the world. And that was actually one reason I stopped promoting. I, you know, I spent I spent over a decade promoting renewables. I was always talking about renewables. I was just one of those activists. It's what you do when you're a climate activist. And then I started to look at the data and saw that actually they never work without a backup because the battery storage isn't there. Now, the battery storage has improved over the last decade, but it is not at a point where we can just run off of wind and, and solar power. So it has to have a backup. And historically, if you look again at the data of what different countries around the world are doing, that's always fossil fuels or nuclear. That's it. That's your choice. So you can build them as much as you want, but you're still going to need a backup or baseload, we call it, um, so that you don't you know, end up having blackouts, which, you know, over here now we're experiencing this kind of energy crunch where we're seeing some of these things play out because we import quite a lot. You know, in Britain, we, we import a lot of, of coal and gas. And it's great here when it's windy and sunny and we have quite high capacity then of uh, solar and wind. And you'll hear people really celebrate that saying, look at the UK, it's run on this, that, the other, you know, we're doing so well. But a couple of days is not 365 days of the year. That's not, it's not good enough really. Um, and it does work in regions. So renewable, actually, let's I should have started with this. Renewables is a really broad term because it includes wind power, solar power, hydropower and biomass. So first of all, biomass shouldn't be in there because it's super polluting. I'm not even sure how it got in there, to be honest. Um, and it means that some figures you look at are, are askew because when they're saying a country's doing really well with renewables, they're including biomass. So watch out for that. 
hydropower is fantastic when you can have a lot of it, but it completely depends on the geography of the country. The places that do have a lot, like um, you know Norway, that that's great. They have loads of hydro, loads of nuclear. They're really clean energy mix, but that's not possible in Britain. We do have a little bit of hydropower, but it's not possible to have um, as much as we need. So that's that's it, really. Those are the basic arguments. You'll hear people say, but renewables are cheaper. Yes, they're cheaper on their own if you buy them, but you're not factoring in the cost of the backup power, which is essentially usually the cost of fossil fuels. Um, it, they also take up a lot of land and there's a high cost there as well. And especially if you think that quite a lot of that land needs to be kind of rewilded or left for nature. Um, again, in Britain, this is a huge issue because we don't have a lot of land. We're not Australia. We, we're struggling, <laughs> you know, with where we, we've got to plant all these trees. Where are they going to go? There's not a lot of space. And a lot of that land that is available is used for farming. So there's huge debates going on here about that already. Are people going to allow those spaces to be covered in wind and solar panels? No. Could we have them on people's houses? Yeah. I mean, I think we should have been doing that a long time ago. Why not? We're in an energy crunch now. Electricity is getting really expensive. And come on, it's a really basic fundamental thing that everybody needs. It, it, it should be subsidised. It should be put on people's houses. But I would add a caveat, which is that the, the industry, the renewables industry, which is you know a small industry, I know, and it's a new and growing it really needs to get its act together with recycling because at the moment those panels can't be recycled and in you know 20 to 30 years they have to be put in a landfill site and they they're harmful they they are classed as hazardous waste and they leach chemicals into landfill sites they need to be recycled so it needs to be done well and it's kind of funny to me that no one ever talks about this because when you talk about nuclear the first thing you hear is waste what about the waste what about the waste with with you know this green tech that's also really important because we're just adding to the problem if we're not sorting it out. Yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question, actually. <laughs> got off track. Um, I think I think essentially what I'd say is it, there's no single answer because it depends on what where you're talking about. So some countries you get a load of sunshine. That's a, that is a good idea to put a lot of solar panels off. And if you have a lot of land, it's not a good idea here, uh, which is why we're looking for offshore wind. Now, that is something that we have more access to. Um, so it varies depending on where you are, what the geography is like. But this is a good thing about nuclear is it's small, it's compact. You can pretty much have it anywhere. So long as you have the engineers to work on it, you can pretty much have it anywhere. And engineering is a really good, you know, sought after kind of occupation. A lot of people want those jobs. They're good jobs. Um, I always think the measure of any kind of country is how many engineers does it have? Because they're, you know, fundamental to everything, aren't they? How well anything works. Well, uh, perhaps we should pivot to to nuclear now. Uh, I, I have changed my mind uh recently so um you know if i had one of your t-shirts I, I think i would wear it um out there um i'm happy to send you a t-shirt thank you very much i will accept i accept your gift <laughs> so um now this is significant because i grew up in an era i think we're all about the same age relatively uh and now when i grew up nuclear was seen uh, akin to a portal to hell itself you know, our parents uh, watch Silkwood and the China Syndrome, and then you know we watch The Simpsons and The Terminator. So basically, nuclear brought mutations and eventually Armageddon. Uh, but I suppose I want to know, you know, what was the moment you realised that nuclear uh, was our best option? Um, and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about uh, environmental progress. Yeah. So it wasn't an overnight decision, as I'm sure it wasn't for you either. And I was surrounded by anti-nuclear people for, you know, my entire, like all through my 20s. Um, every group that I was in was full of anti-nuclear people. Like I never heard a different argument. So that's that's one thing to, to bear in mind. Um, then later, someone approached me, he was an engineer actually, and he'd seen me write, you know, writing something that was anti-nuclear. And he kind of said, well, you know, actually, you've said this about it was Fukushima. The example was, he said, you know, you've said all these people died. They, they didn't die from the, the meltdown. And I was absolutely mind blown because I had spent years listening to people say that thousands of people died because of the meltdown. And he just sent me a paper to read. Uh, uh, you know, um, I know a lot of people don't change their minds this way, but I am very receptive to data. I just hadn't been exposed to it before because I was really in this echo chamber. I hadn't realized it. So I, I read this paper and it said, yeah, you know, the, the tsunami and the earthquake did kill about 20,000 people. You know, it's terrible and tragic. Um, but the meltdown didn't harm anyone. Actually, what harmed people more was that when they evacuated, they panicked and they were like, 
harmed in the process. You know, people were crushed and stuff in the process. So actually the fear of nuclear power harmed them more than the meltdown. Like the meltdown didn't, didn't, um, it just didn't hurt people. I think there was one person that later developed cancer and took them um, to court and he, and he got money, he got money. So technically there's that one person, but I've read the research on that and the odds are that he would have developed that cancer anyway, and it wasn't to do with the meltdown. But anyway, that aside, you know, I had I believed something that was so completely wrong. It just almost like spun my world upside down. And my first reaction was, this can't be true. Like this, this has to be a cover up. I read, had read on a Greenpeace website about how loads of people had died at Fukushima. So I started looking into it more. And then I came across, you know, really sensible voices like James Hansen, you know, ex-NASA scientist, kind of known as the grandfather of climate change because he drew the world's attention to it decades ago. And he's written a lot on nuclear and I came across a piece by him saying we need it to solve climate change and it was it was really like doing somersaults in my mind going okay well this is someone I respect um who I know about but I didn't know that he held these views you know and I didn't know uh that actually maybe what I've been doing has been doing harm because he also James Hansen has calculated the figures of how many lives have been saved from nuclear energy you know he's actually put numbers to that um because of the death that have been then prevented by not using fossil fuels in that time, not, not through climate change, but actually air pollution. People don't realize how many millions of people die every year through air pollution from burning fossil fuels. Um, so yeah, I, I gradually started changing my mind. It's kind of around 2015. And I was still in these groups. And But what I noticed was I'd kind of go in a little bit naively and start talking about, hey, this paper in Fukushima, and I was so instantly shut down that I realized, okay, you're a bit different here. You kind of want to know what's true and these people want to stay where they are and that's you're different and so that's why you know when I went into Extinction Rebellion I, I knew it was just not a topic that I could raise however I will say since I left and wrote about it several people have messaged me from Extinction Rebellion and said they completely agree but again the social license isn't there especially in those groups so they don't feel able to say anything about it and they won't um that was, you know, heartening for me that it's actually quite a lot of people do agree. They just agree privately because social license isn't there. And that is from what you said about we all grew up with this like fear and like, look in the Simpsons, it's great. Look at the waste. It's this green, goopy acid. And look how evil Mr. Burns is. And look at how FOMA mishandles everything. It's, it's dangerous. And, and look at our parents telling us about the Cold War. It's, you know, weapons. We all grew up with that. So it took me a while to unpick you know, okay, why are you actually concerned about this thing? Waste, safety, uh, weapons, and then kind of look at each thing and go, well, I was pretty much wrong about every single thing that I believed. How embarrassing is that? Um, but that's true of anyone you'll meet who's anti-nuclear. Every single thing they believe is probably wrong. Well, they've got a, probably like me, a sort of a spectacular imagination. And they, they picture uh you know just they, they like you hear about somewhere between hearing the word fukushima and the reactor and you know our brain we've created this this image of of just mutated people and like horrible burns and like you know uh, a white hot melting reaction like you know burning like melting down into hell itself i mean i i think all of this <laughs> is is rather fantastic Nuclear has terrible branding. It has terrible branding. When people <laughs> say nuclear industry PR spin, I'm like, what spin? It couldn't have worse branding. People are saying clean coal and natural gas and nuclear, you're still getting these apocalyptic visions of things that frankly have happened really in history and have barely harmed anyone, whereas fossil fuels are killing loads of people. It's amazing, really, isn't it? Um, but I don't blame people that, for that because I think that is kind of pop culture. You know, it's picked up on something that's a really good easy thing to scare people about and then it's just made lots of films and written you know people have written lots of books uh, that start with some kind of nuclear fallout scenario and so it's fed our imaginations almost as if it is real when of course it isn't and the, the odds of you or I being exposed to anything like that are so extremely rare you know again you know in the cold war you could say differently there was a risk but not now not for a long time um, but that's not what our brains are telling us so every time it's reinforced we get back into that kind of fear state and that's a good that's a good way to convince people to be afraid of something right it's just constantly reinforce the same emotional reaction mm. well how do you think we can market it differently so that people accept it as a clean source of abundant power 
So this is what I've been trying to do. And honestly, in a way, it's not that difficult, first of all, because not many people have attempted it. Like I say, really, the industry just doesn't do it and they should um, because they have a clean product. You know, it, it, it's low emissions. It doesn't um, pollute uh, our air. It takes up very little space, has a minimal footprint, and then it provides good jobs. And often over here in Britain, at least when they build these new power stations, they're in quite deprived areas. So I've been to some of these areas and spoken to people and they are so grateful because they're like, well, our kids aren't going to move away now because they're going to get an engineering apprenticeship. They're going to get a good job. And that job's, they're going to have that job for life. There's always going to be jobs in engineering everywhere in the world. So there's so many positives to it and you just don't hear about them anywhere. So, you know, when I, so when I, you've asked about um, environmental progress earlier, so that was my first kind of entry into this activism because it was them that approached me and said, do you want to come and, uh, and talk about nuclear? And I'd actually never thought about it before. So I had privately already been pro-nuclear, but I just never, I didn't even know there was a world of nuclear advocacy because I was so far in the opposite echo, echo chamber. So the first thing I thought was, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to kind of split that echo chamber open so that people like me who are either on the fence or privately agree, you know, see that we're not alone. So I went, first thing I did was I went to the media and I just tried, you know, I talked to editors and journalists. And I had a lot of these contacts for Extinction Rebellion, but as you can imagine, Many of them were just outright like, no, we're not writing about that. And so I'd keep going back. I was very, very persistent with these editors. And I kept going back and saying, look, you've written this article here about Fukushima. It implies all these people just died because of this. But actually, it was that. You need to correct it. And I kept going back and back until I actually managed to get a couple of them to let me write something. That did create a snowball effect where after that, lots of other people and more kind of like well-known people came out and started writing things. Some of them even said this writing this after read, reading Zeon's piece, why aren't we talking about this? And so that has helped a little bit, not just over here, actually, because I've had articles in Germany and France, and as you'll have seen in Australia, plus there's in that documentary recently in Australia um, about clean energy. So that, I think, actually, just those kind of actions are really um, powerful because they've not been done before, simply because they've not been done before. That's it. Just It's so easy to do nuclear advocacy. And I've taken stores out with emergency reactor just you know 15 volunteers giving out free bananas and leaflets talking to people and it 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 is so um positive because everybody has questions about nuclear and almost everyone we speak to either says it's bad or they're on the fence so first you know we start out saying what what's your opinion on nuclear it's bad why why is it bad i don't actually know and that's a really interesting conversation where pretty much instantly they'll change their mind and they'll go away saying oh well i am pro then because actually it's just a lack of information and it's a lack of positive, uh, you know, branding. But it's so easy because all of these things are true. That are really good things. Um, so that's that's all we've been doing. We've been starting out small. We're doing a, a banner drop in London on Saturday, this Saturday, which will be good because we've picked some bridges with um, quite a lot of traffic that goes under them. You know, honk if you like nuclear sort of thing. And again, it's just it's just novel. It just hasn't been done before. And for me, as a long term climate activist, it's so easy and so much more fun because this is the thing in Extinction Rebellion. We were kind of always having to think of more extreme things, right? Because everything has been done and every and it won't get covered again. If you've already done a banner drop, they're not going to cover it again unless your banner says something completely different, which is what we're doing with nuclear. Um, so they push the envelope and they do something more extreme and more extreme. But, uh, you know, actually, it's not that enjoyable. And as you say, there's a bit of a... Um, you know, it gets a bit messy. Some things are really positive and then some things are quite negative and it just seems a bit kind of like, you know, there's no cohesion there. Whereas with nuclear, it really is just positive. We, we, you know, by advocating for it, you're already saying we don't want fossil fuels because it is the only thing that can really displace fossil fuels. So you don't even really need to talk about that. You just talk about how good it is and people, you know, th yeah, there's the occasional person who say that can't be true. And I said, go away and look it up. It's easy to look it up, you know that's what I needed to do too when people first came to me about it I had to go away and look it up and it took me time to change my mind but I've been really impressed by how many people journalists editors people on the street who have you know pretty instantly after talking about anything like Fukushima or whatever thing that they're most afraid of it might be waste it might be something else you know weapons pretty instantly gone oh you know I maybe I'm wrong and most people they don't want to be wrong it's a really small minority that are kind of really anti and it's like a fundamental belief and you don't change your mind and how dare you leave the cult that's a really small minority but the problem is that they've held the stage for a long time and just by talking about it we can we can combat that which is why they will then write horrible statements about me and say don't platform her <laughs> oh, yes well we didn't fall for that don't worry 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to turn our attention back to the current climate activism for just a moment, if I can. Uh, from what I can gather, climate activism seems to be a pursuit of mostly university educated people or the super rich and famous. Uh, those of us that are financially comfortable can afford to offset our carbon or pay higher prices for electricity and air travel or can afford to buy expensive electric cars. But um, a lot of people are going to find life just that much harder to afford. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that the reason the British royal family has latched on to climate activism so hard is that it'll, it'll reinvigorate the aristocracy and, and, and make things such as air travel once again an endeavour that only the rich can really afford. Um, do you think there is something of, of perhaps a, a veiled class war happening around climate activism? This is something that did concern us in Extinction Rebellion. We were very aware of, you know, how middle class a movement it was, and we didn't want it to be like that. But the fact is that if you are working all hours on zero hour contracts, struggling to put food on the table, you are not going to care about climate change. You And you're not going to risk arrest and you're not going to even have time or the, the financial means to be able to get to a protest um, and spend all day there or take a week off and spend all day, you know, camping in London, um, which is the sort of stuff we did. So I, I come from a very working class background, so I was very aware of that. You know, my parents were, they were factory workers their whole lives until they retired and they never earned above minimum wage. So I under, completely understand that divide. And that has always made me different in the climate movement because you know, you'll see this when I do debates, you know, I did one a panel last week with um, someone from Greenpeace and it's just so like the differences are so evident. You know, here's a really middle class, well spoken person. He's had all the education. He's got, you know, he's obviously well off. Uh, they tend to be older men as well, in my experience. He was arguing against nuclear, of course. And then there's me on the other side and I'm talking about jobs and and, you know, stability for people who, who can't afford electricity. Electricity shouldn't be so expensive, you know. And it, they're completely different arguments. But um, although Extinction Rebellion was aware of that, I always felt that they didn't go far enough to address it. Because then when I would say to them, well, we should talk about this, or we should get in touch with workers and, and you know, try and platform their rights and, and, and argue for green jobs and all of those things, they weren't really interested. And I think that comes from when you're from that kind of privileged background, you just don't get it. Like you just don't understand. And, and I'd even have people say to me, look, that anyone can take a work off week, Zion. And I'd say, you're not understanding what it's like when you're living hand to mouth, or you're just struggling, you're just struggling to raise a family or, or, you know, many different things that people from those backgrounds experience. We want to get all of these people from these different groups on board, but their messaging really only was appealing to people like them and that those are the people they're mostly attracted. And Although they kind of sucked me up when I came in and said, right, put her on everything. She's diverse. She's from a different background and all of that stuff. I was very limited in what I could say. And I am bored of telling people to turn off their lights. I am bored of telling people to conserve energy. Right. I'm bored. We're done with this. I've spent 20 years telling this lie, which is we have to use less. This is probably like the most radical thing I could say. Right. We. No, we can all use less. And do you know what? I did that, right? I never learned to drive. I went vegan in 2002, well before it was trendy or easy. Um, you know, I, I did everything. I, I quit flying. I did everything that I was supposed to do that this environmental movement told me was the way to stop climate change. And what I realized over the years is that it's a lie. And that actually, even if we all did that, it wouldn't touch the emissions that are coming from the fossil fuels and huge corporations who depend on those fossil fuels, it's just not going to touch them. It's a lie. or It's making ordinary people struggle when actually the burden isn't on us. The burden is on where you get that energy from. That's it. Change that. And, it, and it's better. Yes, okay, people should drive less. That's, I'm not arguing against that. You know, it puts local emissions, uh, local pollution into your area as well where you're driving. So there's lots. In, in, in Britain, it's, it's not hard to get around without a car. We're not very spread out. So I, you know, I, I'm not saying that we should never have those discussions, but what I'm saying is that even if we all did all of these things, like now lots of us are buying electric cars, people are buying electric cars over here because it's greener. But is it greener if it's coming from fossil fuels, if they're still being recharged by electricity that comes from fossil fuels? We've got to have a bit more in-depth thinking here. And this movement has never been good at that. And actually, I think in a way, uh, that's just prolonged the problem because we've not we've been the loudest advocates 
for change, but we haven't been fighting for the right change. Well, perhaps I could ask another sort of philosophical question about um, if we broaden out from from Britain to the world, but also to think about history. So, you know, it seems that in climate activism that, uh, you know, modernity or industrial revolution or whatever uh, seems to get the short shrift and, and be denigrated a little bit. It seems that, you know, we, we're trying to get to this ideal of, you know, living with the land and, you know, re, you know, returning to the land, peaceful, content, sort of, you know, uh, a utopia of sorts. Uh, but this all seems a little ahistoric, you know, uh, because, you know, I, I like the daffodils of Wordsworth's poems, but um, I also like penicillin. So, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, these are very educated people, these activists, you know, but, but why, why are they so one-eyed at some points with history and so disdainful of human progress and modernity? I mean, does this blind spot ever come up in the meetings? If it ever came up, it was from me <laughs> in uh. every group that I've ever been in. And it's like you could hear a pin drop. And I, it's not that people don't care. Um, I'm not going to say it because they don't care. It's because it's so out of their realm of understanding. And again, you know, I look, my parents migrated here from poverty, from a poor country in the 60s. They were invited to have jobs. My grandfather fought in the World War for the British. So it, it, his son was invited to have a job over here in a factory. There was an industrial boom then here. We had loads of manufacturing, we had loads of jobs. We needed workers. He moved over here. He got on a boat to a country that he didn't even know where it was on a map because he had not had any education. That's how desperate he was to escape poverty. And he left behind everything he knew, the language he spoke, the fam- his entire family, huge family over there, for an unknown, frankly, cold, rainy place where actually an influx of brown people was not welcomed at the time by ordinary people here. Um, and he did that because that is how terrible poverty is. And that is something people just don't grasp. And look, it was the Industrial Revolution that lifted us out of subsistence living, right? This, thank goodness that we have access to, yeah, penicillin, but not just that, education, lighting, you know, hospitals and hospitals that don't experience blackouts because we have reliable electricity, we have an e- electricity grid, we have all of that infrastructure because of that development. And that was always going to happen for humans to progress. That's just, you know, and actually everyone should care about this because it means less people are dying and suffering. But if you've never been close to that in any way, you've had a very easy life and not experienced it, I think it is very hard for people to grasp. And I, I know it probably sounds like I'm making excuses and I hear people say, well, they should get it. But, you know, even I didn't really get it. So I was in this movement and, I, you know, for a long time and was talking about a lot of the things about use less energy and, you know, we've ruined the planet. And then I went to India and I, I only went the once with my parents and, and met my family out there. And they live in this tiny village, middle of nowhere. It's like, four hours from the nearest airport um no access to anything no schools no just not like nothing dirt tracks and I felt sorry for them and I felt bad that I would come back here and I have everything that I have and they don't just want you know uh lighting that works I mean they don't have electricity in these villages they they, but they don't just want that they want you know phones they want iPhones smartphones they want laptops How dare we say that these people can't have that when we've had that? How dare we say that that's such a bad thing that hurt the environment? We can't do that anymore. After we have only ever lived lives where we've had, you know, the advantage of all of this stuff, all of this tech and all of this, um, you know, structural kind of foundational support for us, hospitals, education. You know, and my parents, actually, they've tried to put money into that area. They've tried to uh, set up a school there so that, you know, villagers will have a chance at maybe being able to learn another language or get you know get out of that region and they couldn't find a teacher who'd be willing to live there they offered to pay someone to live there to teach the people but educated people don't want to live like that you know why you're four hours from a hospital what happens if you get bitten by a snake and this does happen lots of people get bitten by snakes in india and you know what they die horrible deaths so it's not because anti-venom doesn't exist it's because you can't get to a hospital that's four hours away. And even if you do, you've got to pay up front and you're lucky if they've got the right antivenom. That's what happens when you don't have the development we've had. Now, they are developing. A lot of these developing countries now are 
rapidly in, and actually India and China building loads of reactors. They realized that poverty is energy poverty and that abundance means having electricity, lots of it. So the opposite to us, Western, rich Western nations are closing down our nuclear power plants like uh, Germany's just done and, and Belgium's doing. And we're saying, no, we don't want to build more. These, these other countries who haven't had it have realized that it's the key to development, you know? And, and for us, yeah, okay, for a long time, the key was fossil fuels because that's what we had. We had, an, we had fire, we had uh, coal, gas, oil, but now it's time to move on. And that moving on is, you know, a new atomic era, I think, actually. And if you look at China's ambitions to build like 150 reactors, you think they're getting it. They understand what it's going to take to lift people out of poverty. We've had it for so long. We've kind of just become blasé, I think. We just flip the switch and, and the light works. If you go and visit a region where they don't have that, you realise how vulnerable you are and, frankly, how rubbish everything is. Uh, you, you know, you get sick. You're just sick. That's it. And actually, these these places in the global south, people should care about this in these movements. You know, they talk about climate justice, but are they thinking about people in the global south? We're going to be exposed to things like temperatures hotter than the human body can handle. You know, that's what the projections say. Therefore, they need good buildings, you know, that can deal with that can withstand heat. They need air conditioning. You know what that needs? Loads of manufacturing, loads of development, loads of electricity. It just needs to come from clean sources, ideally. But if it doesn't, we can't really tell them that they're not allowed to do it. We really should just get our emissions down and allow some leeway for them to have whatever coal or whatever they need in this kind of energy transition. And that is a very controversial group uh, view in these groups. And it's one that I've heard before. But as I say, it's like you say it, a pin drops and then the conversation moves to something else. It's like I couldn't, I couldn't get that view across. I'm doing a much better job of it just on my own now and and people are coming on board into this group saying hey I, I agree with that and I've thought about that but the existing groups that have been the environmental movement for a long time are really struggling and I think it's because they are from that background they are from that background where they cannot imagine what it's like not to have access to things that actually billions of people in the world today don't have access to and 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 we're one step away from that right if we lose electricity we lose everything and they took we're, We've got a real issue going on here in Europe at the moment with um, this energy crunch. Um, I don't know if you know about any of this, but but basically it, it might be that we have blackouts. It might be that that's how bad it's gotten. It might be that we experience blackouts. So grid issues everywhere. Uh, Germany shut down its entire nuclear fleet. Couldn't do it with renewables, trillions into renewables, but couldn't do it with renewables alone and having to import coal and nuclear from France. France has to, has to um, share out its nuclear as part of these kind of and treaties they have within the in the EU, so it's all really complicated. But basically, our grid has, grid has become fragile because we're shutting these nuclear reactors. We're not building more. And I actually think if we do experience blackouts, it'll be a good big wake up call for people. I mean, it won't be good because let's face it, people will die in blackouts. More people will die in blackouts than nuclear is ever harmed. You know, um, because your life saving equipment's not going to work. You know, you'll have accidents because there's no street lights. We can't imagine it because we haven't lived like that. Whereas I think it's just easier for me to imagine because I've seen it firsthand. And actually I was on a panel a little while ago with a, a former Green Party leader, uh, former leader of the, the Green Party here. I know her really well. And um, she said this thing on this panel, which was British people don't have a high quality of life. And I was utterly shocked, utterly shocked that someone could say that. I mean, look, she, she's a baroness. She is from that background, very middle-class. She just doesn't get it. And I get, I understand what you're saying. Look, lots of people have mental health issues, lots of people are struggling. But to claim in any way that our lives are not like so significantly better than people that live in poverty is just an outright lie. And people shouldn't be saying that. I mean, you think people in these developing countries don't have mental health problems. You think they're not struggling. Their struggle is when they struggled, right? You know, and I think that's, that's the problem. When you talk to people here, uh, Greens here, that's what they'll say. They'll say, Look, everybody's suffering and it's really bad. And look, we've chopped down these trees and, and you know, uh, climate change. And I'm like, yeah, those are issues, but they're the first world issues. I'm reminded, <laughs> I'm reminded of a line from uh, arguably one of your more famous, famous exports. Uh, what have the Romans ever done for us? I believe <laughs> the saying goes. And that's, yeah. that's uh, how it goes. Well, what you said about, you know, it's a good point what you said about um, this kind of nostalgia for this, you know, pre-industrial revolution. But actually, 
what we the way we lived back then was not that sustainable like it's just uh it's just a myth it's just a myth that lots of people believe we weren't like really um oh we live close to the land so really uh, sustainable and ethical no we weren't um I, I I I saw on a video that you're a bit of a trekkie, so I think I think people are picturing a, just a, a holodeck fantasy, <laughs> you know? Yeah, of, unfortunately, unfortunately, but actually, we're kind of living that reality now, right? If you live in uh, a developed nation, you're already living that reality. Like, you know, I come home and I talk to Alexa, and I, you know, I live in this kind of I've got AI, and I've got like, you know, uh, I've got everything really, right? Like, uh, it's uh, I think it's hard to see the difference I think it's hard for people to see the difference and imagine what it's like not to have all of that I do see that you know and I maybe maybe the lights going out is is one way to help wake people up so if that happens who knows but then on the other hand you shouldn't have to experience it to really appreciate it so if there's something going wrong with like I don't know the education system where people just aren't understanding how lucky we are that we have, have all of this and how people here live not that far you know not that long ago I mean even my parents would talk about when they first moved here that you couldn't have a fridge at home fridges were oh uh, sorry a freezer at home freezers were only in supermarkets and you know they didn't really sell a lot of frozen because you, most people couldn't store it at home and then the tech improved and now everyone has one and then tvs and radio you know all of that was a massive kind of boom that came out of having this this um high quality of life um but, but even even aside from the tech and all of that advancement more people are alive like for most of human history, poverty was the default. You know, a quarter of babies died in their first year, half didn't make it to adolescence. This is this was also true of hunter-gatherers. So, and of course it was, they didn't have medical care. You know, it wasn't like, well, nat- once upon a time, we could naturally just pop out babies and we're fine. No, no, no. People just died. People with disabilities just died, right? People with any disadvantage just died. Any woman who was unlucky in her uh, pregnancy or childbirth just died the difference is now we have hospitals and medical care and more importantly access to those things that gives us a really high quality of life and we're lucky to have that we should just try and have that without destroying the planet that makes sense too okay but we can have both ideas in our head we can hold the idea that hey we develop this quality of life by doing this thing that wasn't that great which is polluted the air and the atmosphere and we can also have the idea that, but still, it's good that we did, that we have developed. Let's just look at how we maintain that without continuing to cause unnecessary, frankly, unnecessary deaths in the 21st century. I mean, we've got the tech to, to fix all of this. What are we doing? Mm, yeah. Well, it's always concerned me that that the uh, climate activist class uh, have such a disregard for third world nations and, and sort of want to deny them their development uh, to, to quote unquote save the planet, um, but uh, yeah, I, th- I thought maybe I could uh, pivot to a slightly different direction, um, and uh, that you know, there's always a lot of talk in the environmentalist movement of of net zero targets and technologies like renewables, but very little talk of human adaptation. Uh, human beings are obviously you know we're, we're resilient and and we're a resourceful species and. Um, you know, just take the Dutch, for instance, you know, one third of the Netherlands is situated under the sea level. And I think at its lowest point, it's it's about 6.7 metres below sea level. Um, the, and now the Dutch have utilised dikes since the 11th century to hold the sea back and to prevent major flooding. Um, according to the World, Hall, World uh, Meteorological Organisation, early warning and disaster management has uh, decreased deaths related to weather events by almost threefold in the last 50 years. Um, do you think adaptive measures should be thought about and developed alongside the phase out of coal and the use of nu- nuclear technology? Absolutely, definitely. I mean, that's it seems like a no-brainer, right? <laughs> Like uh, but, but are many people talking about this though? I, I I never hear about the idea of like adaptation to to climate change. I don't think that it does get much attention actually, which is a shame. I think actually there's an, a kind of an over focus on emissions. I mean that's what I talk about, you know, um, because it's very relevant from where I'm sitting. But there are multiple, there are many different things that we need to be doing, you know, uh, and and again it varies per country. Like each country needs to have. A plan. They need to have a strategy for how they're going to deal with increasing, you know, weather events or more frequent rain. But I mean, we don't have a plan here. We have, honestly, it snows here and everything just falls apart. Like we just have really bad infrastructure in some ways, and we haven't really adapted 
and that's just from ordinary kind of you know ordinary weather events so we're, not, we're just not very good at coping with extremes and when it got really hot um the last heat wave we had problems with some of our roads melting like the actual like tarmac was melting. Mm, well i tell you what it happens in australia all the time yeah we need to i mean what are we doing are you telling me there aren't solutions for this the, the problem is there just doesn't seem to be forward thinking and that even if you don't care about climate change, you know, that that's just, again, it's a no-brainer. People are going to be harmed if they're driving on roads that are unstable. People are harmed every time there's a flood or a strong storm. Let's do the things that we need to do to protect people and protect our institutions and make sure that, you know, everything is safe. Because why not? That's surely what it's supposed to mean to govern a nation. Um, so I don't know why that's missing. Um, I think, you know, we're fairly well protected in the UK. Uh, we don't cope very well with with bad storms and weather extremes, as I say, and I think we're going to start feeling that soon. And the more we feel it, I think is is probably going to actually lead to conversation about what needs to be done. So one of the things you might have heard of is Insulate Britain. This is a separate group to Extinction Rebellion, but I know it's some of the people, some of the same people who are involved. They block roads, saying we need to insulate houses, basically. And you know, whatever you think about um, their tactics or whatever, this is actually a really fair point. Like, why aren't we just insulating every house? Every house needs that, right? Because we're wasting loads of electricity. We're in an electricity crunch at the moment. We're struggling, uh, you know, we're relying heavily on, on gas um, and, and basically heavily on imports. Not a good position to be in. Um, lots of forecasts saying that the prices are going to get even higher. Lots of people struggling. Uh, we need heating, right? We need lighting. We need all of this stuff. We should just put, like, join the dots together and think, well, what do we need to do? We need to insulate houses. That's one thing. We need to make sure that, we're not building houses that don't have strong foundations. We're not building them in flood zones, you know, lots of stuff like that. And I think some of that is happening on a small level, like local councils here are trying to make the right decisions. But on an overall scale, it's it's not happening at all. We're just not thinking about it. And, and some of these things are so easy to do. You know, you look at things like urban forests, if you've heard of that. It's just having a small forested area in a city, it's not controversial. Nobody doesn't like these places, right? You go to London, you go to fucking Palace, everybody loves St. James Park. It's got loads of wildlife there, loads of trees. It's quite a nice kind of escape from the city if you're there. You know, it, it, it brings returns. It brings economic returns. It improves health. There's lots to say for putting these places, uh, building these places, but all they are is like, they're called urban forests, small areas uh, with a lot of trees, basically, which actually has been found to bring down temperatures in those areas where they're, where they're planted, they naturally bring down the temperatures. So if you think, well, we're having more heat waves and we're not really coping with that, that's a no-brainer. That's like, why aren't we doing that? It's, it's cost-effective. It wouldn't even cost a lot of, 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 of money. You know, it would just take time for the trees to grow. That's it. But that's a reason to have done it, you know, 20 years ago, not a reason not to do it today. And I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe they're just not as exciting as solutions. Maybe... There's a lot of short-sightedness in government, I guess. You know, you plant trees, like you're not going to see them grow in your term. They're going to be, the benefits are reaped later. So I think there's some of that. Same with same with nuclear. Yeah, you could, you could you know, fund new reactors, but they're not probably not going to be built while you're still in government. So why do you care? You know, a lot, of, a lot of people think like that. And I keep trying to say, actually, if you care about your legacy as a politician, you should care about this stuff because we're going to point back to you and say, whoa, that person did amazing stuff for our environment, you know. Um, but no one seems to think like that, unfortunately. And I think that maybe that's a cultural thing. You know, I don't really speak for Britain. It's where I live. But um, it does seem to be a problem around around the world. I think, I think again, developing nations are thinking about these things more than us. And they are having the discussions. But we're not often hearing what, you know, what they actually have to say. So, you know, like things like um, China, where they're kind of trying to build uh, buildings with um like forests integrated into them. They have kind of structures where the moss and stuff grows at the buildings, can't remember what they're called. I thought that was very brilliant and innovative, you know, makes complete sense, but I've never seen it outside of outside of there. I don't know where else it's happening. Well, uh, I feel like we've we've gone all around the world. Um, so I think to wrap things up, uh, perhaps, you know, the final question, what what's some what are what are some practical things or the main practical thing you think an average person listening to this could do? Uh, you know, to, to do their part. I think the best thing anyone can do is talk about solutions. Just make sure they're evidence-based solutions um, because otherwise we're just going to do more harm than good. But, you know, you can pick anything. There are so many things. We've discussed a lot of different things that we could be could be doing already. Like pick a fight and get involved because actually we're not doing it. For too long, you know, this environmental movement has just been about what we're against 
And I get that, you know, and I get that that's been successful, but it really is time to talk about solutions. What do we need to get from A to B? How do we get there? How can we do it quickly and with the most benefit to the most people? I mean, it's just a no-brainer, isn't it? And, and it doesn't have to be nuclear. I know that that's, that's quite a hard topic for people to come to, but there are quite a lot of different things we could be, um, you know, supporting. And I, I, and I, I say this again, just, just to be clear, I'm not talking about telling people to live with less and use less because we've done that for decades and it hasn't worked. And the best behavioral scientists in the world haven't worked out how to make people do it. So unless you're talking about authoritarian rule, which we don't want, there is no way to make people live with so little that it's going to have a significant impact on our emissions. So look at what the solutions actually are that will work, like getting people involved in tree planting measures or, you know, whatever, car sharing, building nuclear reactors. I mean, you get a nuclear reactor built, you can calculate the amount of lives you saved and the amount of carbon you saved from going into the atmosphere. So that's my goal, because that's like the biggest thing that I could possibly do. If I stop one of these things being shut down, I can I can actually say probably for the first time that my climate activism is effective, let's put it that way. So don't be afraid to get involved and actually don't just follow the lines that everybody's been following for decades, because actually that script in some ways has done more harm than good and it's definitely time to move the conversation forward mm, well said well Zion, thanks so much thank you well that was fantastic great stuff so so interesting and um you know as i said i've, I've done a complete uh, change on nuclear and and uh you know i i i, I mean i just one last thing i i think um Zion has a a link for us for anyone who's interested in in uh, nuclear or or what she's up to you can go to emergencyreactor.org. So that's emergencyreactor.org. You can also sign up for or for their mailing list there to be keep uh, to keep uh, abreast of what's going on in the nuclear space. Um, and it's a cool website actually. I've just checked it out. And um, again, and you know, very very colourful. We're talking about branding this episode, and I think that the, you know, this is a great example of uh, the, you know, uh, what has been very unsexy trying to trying to make nuclear sexy again. Mm, yeah. Again. Well, I think it was probably sexy for about two minutes before the bomb. Yeah. Went off. Okay. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> or is that going to get me cancelled? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> probably. <laughs> oh no, you've left me alone. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Well, we said what we said. Long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. <laughs> <laughs>